Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was August 1860. Residents of a rundown building in the East End of London wondered where their landlady was. It was two weeks into the month, and she hadn't come to collect late rent payments. This was unusual for the no-nonsense Mary Emsley. The tenants were used to Mary's rent collectors coming at the start of the month, and if someone didn't pay up, then Mary herself would confront them. But this time, they didn't see her anywhere, not even off the property. After a few days, they became concerned. Even though they didn't like Mary... The tenants worried that something was wrong. Money was her main priority. She never showed leniency. So they wondered if perhaps she'd fallen ill. After all, disease ravaged the impoverished East End. Or maybe the 70-year-old had a nasty fall. Despite these grim possibilities, the tenants thought that if Mary was confined in the hospital, it would buy them some more time to try and avoid eviction which Mary loved to enforce, and no one wanted to become homeless. Secretly, some tenants even felt they'd be better off if they never had to deal with Mary again. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Mary Emsley. This week, we'll detail Mary's stony reputation and those who may have wanted her dead. Next week, we'll explore law enforcement's irreversible mistake and why this murder puzzled crime enthusiasts for years. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora, curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mary Emsley's early life was filled with hardship and tragedy. While few details are available, what we do know paints a picture of loneliness and strife. Mary was born in 1790 in London's East End, an area known at the time for poverty, violence, and disease. During the first 10 years of her life, she endured the loss of her brother, sister, and mother, who all died due to poor sanitation in the city. Mary also survived a fire that ravaged her community and destroyed over 450 homes. She spent the next 10 years under the care of her father, a shoemaker, along with her two remaining brothers. Then in 1810, 20-year-old Mary married a man named John Jones, who was also a shoemaker. By all accounts, the pair had a good relationship. But unfortunately, their marriage was also marked by tragedy. They had one child who passed away at the age of two. Then in 1833, John died as well. Mary was left to run her husband's shoemaking business, which proved difficult for a number of reasons. Even though she'd learned the craft from her father and husband, the trade was not as secure as it had been 20 years prior. Finding clients became more and more challenging, and by that point, Mary had developed a bitter attitude toward life. To make matters worse, Mary was unable to keep the books because she was illiterate. She hired an assistant named Emma, but even with help, it seemed her attitude continued to harden. Perhaps that's why, despite growing up poor herself, Mary had no patience for those who couldn't make ends meet. I did it, Emma. That bloody thief has been punished. She's been put away, all thanks to me. You mean that poor woman, Jane Kendley? Don't act so sympathetic. Jane stole from me. She stole shoes and pawned them just blocks away. (laughs) She's not even smart. They must have been expensive shoes. Eh, only three shillings, but... It's not the price, Emma. It's the principle. I heard she was found to be of good character. Perhaps she was in dire need. Look around, girl. We're all in dire need. Jane, the thief, was sentenced to two months in prison for stealing the equivalent of only $15 today. Mary was actually angry that Jane didn't receive a harsher punishment, but still proud to have won the lawsuit. She appeared to have viewed it as one of her few wins in life, and it strengthened her core belief that justice was more important than mercy. That tenant was further solidified when, shortly after Jane went to prison, Mary inherited a large sum of property from her late brother's estate. John had passed away in America, but Mary hadn't seen him for years, so she was more focused on the life-changing inheritance than any grief she may have felt. In Mary's mind, this inheritance was good karma. She immediately gave up the shoemaking business and embarked on a new endeavor. 
she became a landlady. She thrived in this new role. The wealth and power delighted her. She became especially protective of her money and stored all her cash in a safe at a nearby pub. She also continued to show no mercy to those who owed her money. Mr. and Mrs. Davis! Hello? Come on, dear. Under the table where she can't see us. <laughs> can't we just tell her we'll have it next week? You know we can't. I know you're home. Out with it now. Rent's due. I wish we could reason with her. We've been her tenants for years. Ah, that stingy old woman doesn't care. You know I saw her yelling at the children across the hall. She pesters hungry children to get their parents to pay. Disgraceful. And it's not like she's wanting for money. You've left me no choice. I want you out. Mary wasn't afraid to kick people out on her own. Some speculated that she felt a sense of schadenfreude as she watched families pack up and leave their homes with nowhere to go. In 1843, Mary's wealth and power more than doubled in size when she married Samuel Emsley, a successful corset manufacturer. Samuel owned several East London properties and parcels of land. Samuel had two grown stepchildren from his first marriage, but Mary never bothered to get to know them. At age 53, she was uninterested in anyone but herself or her new husband. And if Mary was known as standoffish before, her demeanor only calcified when Samuel died in 1856. Now 66 years old, Mary became a widow for the second time. And although she inherited her husband's estate, this personal loss nearly broke her. She'd thought the hard times were over. Out of pain and perhaps resentment, Mary continued to take her anger out on others. It's safe to say that Mary had far more enemies than friends. The only person she was known to socialize with was a local minister named Joseph Biggs, but she even put him to work. Mary was still illiterate and her assistant had left, so Joseph kept her books. We know now that Biggs was actually quite fond of Mary, even though she used him for his labor. Other than the minister, her rent collectors, and other odd-job employees, Mary never associated with anyone. She rarely left her house and didn't allow anyone into her home without first questioning them from her window. So in August of 1860, when one of Mary's rent collectors, a man named Walter M., couldn't reach her, he initially didn't think much of it. But a few days passed, and Walter grew concerned. Mary was never slow to get her money, so Walter worried she was sick. He called upon Mary's solicitor, William Rose, for help. William promptly walked to Mary's house and tried the door, but it was locked. Worried, William and Walter decided to contact the police and Mary's stepsons-in-law to tell them what was happening. John Faith and Henry Whitaker were the husbands of Samuel Emsley's daughters. And although Mary never bonded with them, they were still concerned. So William, John, and Henry, as well as Joseph Biggs, met an officer named Sergeant Dillon at Mary's house. According to court testimony, the others had already gathered by the time Dillon arrived. Sergeant Dillon, 
Everything all right? Ah, you must be Mr. Rose. Uh, you were here this morning, right? Did you see any signs of a break-in at that time? No, sir. Hmm, neither have I. But when I went over the wall into Mrs. Emsley's yard, I noticed the back door and shutters were unfastened. Someone could have left that way, but they didn't break in. Did you hear anything in the house from the yard? No, the house appears empty. Now that you're here, why don't you come inside with me? It would help to have someone who knows Mrs. Emsley, just in case. With the others waiting out front, William followed Dylan to the back door and into the house. Once inside, they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. William pointed the officer to the staircase. Dylan took the lead. When the two men reached the top floor landing, Dylan signaled William to stop. He then pointed at a large, bloody footprint on the floor. As they approached the door to the lumber room, they were hit with a rotten odor. The men steeled themselves for what they would find on the other side of the door. Coming up, Mary's former employee stalks a murder suspect. Hi, I'm Christine Schiefer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast, And That's Why We Drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. Mary Emsley had been missing for days. On August 17, 1860, Police Sergeant Dillon and William Rose entered her home to try and find her. They were met with a putrid stench and the sight of a bloody footprint. They braced themselves as they climbed the stairs and turned the corner into the lumber room. They entered and were shocked at the sight of the floorboards and walls covered in blood. The scene was so violent, they almost didn't notice the rolls upon rolls of wallpaper stashed there. Then Sergeant Dillon looked down and found Mary Emsley. Mary lay dead on the floor. Her face was swollen, and liver mortis colored her neck purple. But most disturbing was Mary's gruesome head wound. The back of her skull had been pulverized, Maggots crawled around her brain, which was visible even through all the congealed blood and shards of skull. In addition, one of Mary's arms was stretched out as if she'd been reaching for the door when she was attacked. 
Her other arm clung to a roll of wallpaper. Is that wallpaper? Looks like it. There are rolls practically filling the room. Perhaps she planned to replace some for a tenant? More likely she planned to sell it for profit. Do you have any idea what could have happened here, Sergeant? Uh, there was obviously a struggle. Uh, see here on this wainscoting? There's an indentation. Could that be from the same object that killed her? I'd bet that it was. The murderer took an initial swing and missed, hitting the wood paneling. Since there were no reports of screaming, I'm guessing he got her on the second try. Uh, so she didn't suffer long. I, I don't think so, but we'll need more help to know for certain. I'll contact the station as well as the coroner. More officers arrived and set up a barricade around Mary's house. They knew that once news of Mary's death got out, morbid curiosity would bring onlookers to the scene. They also removed the floorboard with the bloody footprint in order to preserve evidence. Their plan was to compare it to the footprints of their eventual suspects. As investigators searched Mary's house, they discovered that a few random items were missing. This included rings, spoons, a pencil case, and a check for 10 pounds. It's unclear how the police knew these items were missing, especially since Mary didn't often invite anyone upstairs. Nevertheless, it appeared to officers that burglary was involved. As they sorted through all the details, William provided some more insight. Her stepsons say she didn't keep money in her house, so maybe the killer wanted more? And when they realized she didn't have it, they swiped some things on their way out. No signs of a break-in, and no reports of hearing a struggle. Dylan had mentioned the back door and shutters were unfastened. The killer must have known the poor old lady. She must have let them in. And you see the size of that footprint? It's quite large. Most likely, it was a man. I beg your pardon, officers, but I do believe you were mistaken in one regard. If Mary did know the attacker, then that person would have known she kept no money in her home. Everyone who knows her is aware of this. I believe this person's only objective was murder. Authorities considered this possibility and turned their attention to the large amount of wallpaper in Mary's lumber room. They eventually discovered that Mary had purchased the wallpaper at an auction a little over a week prior to her death. They believe she planned to sell it. With all of this in mind, they pieced together a possible narrative for the crime. Someone had made an appointment with Mary under the pretense of buying some of the wallpaper. She let the person into her house, and when they got upstairs, the killer struck. But this still left the question of motive, which officers hoped to discern by questioning Mary's associates. So they made their way through town. As they did so, word of Mary's murder spread. Locals became determined to figure out who the killer was. It's safe to assume they were more concerned for their own safety than justice for Mary. If this person could fool someone as skeptical as Mary, he could get anyone. Mary's own employees were especially invested in figuring out who killed her. This was partly out of fear for their own lives and partly due to morbid curiosity. 
They were astonished that someone managed to get close enough to kill her. One of these employees was James Mullins, who worked odd jobs for Mary. James was particularly enthralled in the mystery. He believed a scandal was afoot. James heard that Mary's rent-collecting agent, Walter M., was the one who alerted her solicitor, William Rose, that something was wrong. James became convinced that there was more to that story. He thought it would have been ingenious for the killer himself to raise the issue. Then authorities would never suspect him because he was the noble citizen who called for help in the first place. So James took it upon himself to start watching Walter. He followed him around town for days, watching his every move. James likely felt a sense of purpose in attempting to track the killer. His past experience likely allowed him to follow Walter without detection. Finally, on the morning of August 28th, James saw something worth reporting. He immediately made his way to the home of Sergeant Tanner, a homicide officer assigned to the case. Hello, sir. I'm sorry to bother you at home. My name is James Mullins. I worked for Mrs. Mary Emsley, and I believe I know who killed her. It was a man named Walter M. The rent collector? Yes, sir. See, I've been watching Walter. He lives over in Bethnal Green on the edge of one of Mrs. Emsley's properties, a brick field. (sighs) All right. This morning around 8 o'clock, I saw Walter leave his cottage and walk over to a shed in that brick field, carrying a small parcel in his hand. When he came back out from the shed, he no longer had the parcel. He stashed it in there. Did you go see what was in it? Perhaps it's something of personal value that he doesn't want to keep in his home. Then why didn't he go to a bank or buy a safe? Mrs. Emsley herself stored her money in a pub. (sighs) Okay. Meet me at Scotland Yard tomorrow morning and you can lead me to the shed. The next morning, after James arrived at Scotland Yard, Tanner explained the situation to Inspector Thornton, a senior officer on the case. Then the three men made their way to the brick field. James spent their carriage ride bragging about how clever he was and how he was sure he'd solved the murder. By the time they arrived at the brick field, Sergeant Tanner and Inspector Thornton were tired of James's ramblings. James seemed to suggest he was better at their job than they were, so after he pointed out the shed, the officers asked him to remain in the carriage. He watched as the officers made their way across the brickfield, barely able to contain his excitement. He tried to keep his head down so no passers-by would see him, but he was able to see all he needed. The officers reached the shed, but just as they were about to enter... They were stopped by a booming voice. Walter M. was standing in his doorway, anger flashing across his face. What do you think you're doing? Mr. M., I'm Sergeant Tanner. This is Inspector Thornton. We're investigating a tip involving your shed here. By any chance, were you in or around this shed around 8 o'clock yesterday morning? No, sir, I wasn't. I was quite ill yesterday. I didn't get out of bed until at least ten. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. Sergeant Tanner, why don't you go do that? Now, Mr. M, I'm going to take a quick look inside your shed, if that's all right. Go ahead. I have nothing to hide. As Inspector Thornton made his way to the shed, 
Sergeant Tanner confirmed with Mrs. M that her husband had indeed not woken up until after 10 a.m. the day before. Tanner thanked her and rejoined the two other men. Tanner and Walter waited as Inspector Thornton searched the inside of the shed. Then Thornton emerged, empty-handed. He glanced toward the carriage where James waited. James's eyes met his, and the inspector saw panic wash across the accuser's face. Coming up, James Mullins uncovers a clue. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. James Mullins had accused Walter M. of stashing a suspicious package in a shed on Mary Emsley's property. When Inspector Thornton searched the shed, he didn't find anything of the sort. Already annoyed with James for his self-gratifying demeanor, Thornton now felt the man had wasted their time. Thornton ordered Tanner and Walter to stay put, then made his way back to the carriage where James waited. He wanted to see what James had to say for himself. Mr. Mullins, you must make sure Mr. M doesn't see you. He doesn't know you're the one who tipped us off, and I don't want him to. Now, as you can see, I didn't find a parcel in the shed. What do you have to say about that? But you didn't even look through the whole shed. The parcel's in there. I can show you. No. Mr. M will see that- I don't care! Inspector Thornton and Sergeant Tanner watched as James bounded towards the shed, right past Walter. He went in for a moment, and when he came back out, he urged the officers to look through some stacks of bricks leaned against the wall. Thornton and Tanner begrudgingly agreed. They went into the shed together and began moving the bricks. Then, hidden among the heaps, they uncovered a small parcel tied with wax string. They brought it outside, and Thornton crouched down and unwrapped it. Several of the items that were missing from Mary's house were inside, including teaspoons and the ten-pound check. Thornton glanced up at James and Walter. Walter insisted that he had never seen the parcel before in his life, and that he didn't know how it got there. James stood quietly with a smug look stretched over his face. But then Thornton caught a glimpse of James's boots and noticed something interesting. The cobbler's wax end used on the string to tie the parcel was the exact same wax end used on the laces of James's boots. But he kept that thought to himself. Instead of dragging out the present situation, he told James and Walter that both of them would be coming to the station for questioning. Walter was in tears at this point, but he weakly agreed. James was on cloud nine. He believed that Thornton wanted him to continue helping with the case. Once both men were at the station, officers got to work, searching their homes. Nothing of interest was found at Walter's, but at James's, they found a piece of cobbler's wax on his mantle. They also found a hammer, 
which looked like it could have been the murder weapon. After making these discoveries, Inspector Thornton questioned James. James, I've come to discuss items we found in your home. You searched my home? What items? We found this roll of wax paper string. So, I used that to tie my boots. It was also used to tie the parcel in the shed. (laughs) That string is the most common you can find. Tons of people have it. That may be, but in connection with the other item we found, it does make you look suspicious. Well, out with it then. We found a hammer that looks as though it could have been the murder weapon. Of course I own a hammer. I perform odd jobs all over town. I use it almost every day. Is there anything suspicious about the hammer? Is it bloodied? No, but it could have been cleaned, could it not? I don't believe this. I brought you to a suspect. I watched him. I saw him stash the parcel. I was doing your job, and now I'm under scrutiny? James's comments didn't help his case any, but Thornton still needed to learn more about Walter before jumping to conclusions. The punishment for murder was execution, so he needed to be certain. He learned that Walter was in good financial standing with Mary and that he wasn't in need of money since he held stable work and was able to support his family. He simply didn't fit the profile police had started to form. Not to mention, he had an alibi. However, as police solidified their theory that the killer was motivated by anger, not money, this also made James appear more innocent. James had also been in good standing with Mary and held down consistent work. The idea regarding a wallpaper buyer started to seem more likely. That person could have known about Mary's large estate, but would not have known that she didn't keep her cash in the house. It was a viable theory. The only problem was, no one had any idea who this man could be. So officers teamed up with the coroner, Dr. Gill, to hold an official inquest into the murder. At the time, this was a standard response to crimes of this nature. Those who had known Mary were called to testify in front of a jury about the night in question, as well as her daily life. The goal was to help authorities narrow down their field of suspects. Joseph Biggs was one of the witnesses. His testimony captured what many others said. Mary wouldn't have let anyone into her home if she didn't know them or if they didn't have an appointment. Joseph also said that he'd seen Mary on Sunday the 12th, the day before the murder. They'd met to handle Mary's receipts. Then they arranged to meet again the following Tuesday. But Big said that when he showed up at her house that day, no one answered the door. He figured she'd forgotten about their meeting, so he didn't think much of it. Joseph's testimony helped determine that Mary had almost certainly been killed on Monday the 13th, as suspected. But when Mary's neighbor, Caroline Barnes, took the stand, she said something that put that timeline into question. The minister said that when he called upon Mrs. Emsley on Tuesday, she didn't answer the door. But I do believe she was home. Late that morning, I saw someone through the window. They were moving the wallpaper. I naturally assumed it was her, but looking back, the figure was in shadow. 
It could have been anyone. All I know is, someone was in her house that Tuesday. The authorities weren't sure what to think. It was possible that Mary had been killed on Tuesday and simply ignored Joseph's knock at the door that morning. But Joseph seemed adamant that Mary wouldn't have done that. If she saw it was him at the door, she would have opened it. The only other possibility was a perplexing one, something that none of the detectives had ever seen in their line of work. The murderer may have spent the night. In addition, as the inquest went on, jury members started to believe the theory that the murderer was a psychopath who had pretended to want to buy wallpaper. Inspector Thornton, on the other hand, held on to his already formed bias. He still couldn't shake his suspicion of James Mullins. After all, none of the inquest testimony seemed to rule James out. Thornton mainly couldn't get past how James had led them right to the location of the parcel in the shed. Perhaps James's overly eager attitude that day also rubbed Thornton the wrong way. And even though James was right that the wax paper string was common, Thornton still felt it was a big coincidence that the wax used on the string to tie the parcel was the same kind James used for his boots. Thornton had a gut feeling that James had been trying to pull the exact scheme that he accused Walter of committing, alerting the police to something in order to disguise and distract from his own guilt. But the inspector needed something more concrete. So Thornton brought James's hammer to Dr. Gill and asked if it could have been the murder weapon. Dr. Gill said yes. Based on Mary's wounds, it was more likely that she was struck with a sharp object as opposed to a blunt or round one. The doctor's assertion galvanized the inspector. Thornton may have also leaned towards James as a suspect because of the pressure on him to convict someone. Ever since Mary's murder, East Enders had become obsessed with bringing justice to the killer. Then, when a reward of 300 pounds was offered for any information that led to the killer's capture, the whole of the East End turned into citizen detectives. 300 pounds was the equivalent of $35,000 today. That amount could have changed someone's life. So even though the evidence against James was entirely circumstantial, with pressure mounting and the risk of an everyday East Ender making more progress than him, Thornton made an executive decision. He released Walter M. and officially arrested James Mullins for the murder of Mary Emsley. Thornton watched as James was transferred to a prison at the edge of London, hoping he had done the right thing. If he had, a cold-blooded killer was off to face justice. But if he hadn't, and James was convicted, Thornton would become a killer himself, and the real killer would still roam free. What Thornton didn't realize was that his decision would have an effect beyond that of his own community and career. It would ripple for centuries. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the debatable case of Mary Emsley. 
for more information on Mary Emsley's murder. Amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mile End Murder by Sinclair McKay extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Sammy Amounts, Cameron Nicod, Ellie Schiff, Nazee Tarsha, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.